You're listening to 92Y Talks. Academy Award winner Helen Hunt sits down with Real Pieces moderator Annette Insdorf to discuss her latest film, Ride. Written, directed by, and starring Hunt, the actress plays a literary agent who takes up surfing and embarks on a journey of self-discovery. The conversation was recorded on April 29, 2015 in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Well, it is a pleasure for me to welcome actor, writer, director, Helen Hunt. We are going to... Uh, thank you. We're going to start with a few questions about the film that we've just watched, which is going to be opening on Friday, if I'm not mistaken. On Friday, Village Tell your East. Friends. Tell <laughs> and, your friends. And uh, then we'll be talking a bit about the entire career, and we will take questions from the audience before the end. I'm going to start off by saying, quite frankly, that it is such a refreshing change to see on screen a woman who has a plausible combination <laughs> of bravery, vulnerability, sex appeal, smarts, and isn't 20, 21 years old. <laughs> um, so I, I did want to ask about how this particular project came about. Were you always going to play Jackie? In other words, did you write it with the idea that you would be starring? Or was it more this image of a story that came to you and you didn't know if it would be your acting? Um, the first movie I made, I told myself I wasn't going to be in it for a long time. And then for logistical and creative reasons and ambitious reasons, I wanted to be in it. This one, I sort of knew I probably wasn't going to get another person to get, you know, be beaten up like that <laughs> for such a small paycheck. Um, so I, I, I thought that I would, I would play the part. Yeah, it came out of um, hearing this phrase "soccer mom" uh, <laughs> in Canada. It's hockey mom. In LA, sometimes it's surf mom. But you know, there's these mothers on the beach and in the stands, and these sons and daughters out there playing. And I thought, eh, be nice to mix that up. Um, and I had a mentor uh, named James Hillman who. Um, wrote an essay that the first movie I made was sort of based on thematically for me, and I gave him the script to ride, and he said, I've got something for you. And he gave me an essay called The Bad Mother. And it's all about sort of the danger um, when there's this polarization and all the play goes to the child and all the policing and parenting and planning goes to the parent, that it all, it's very bad for everybody. And it's sort of a cautionary tale about how you know, you need to get the finger paints out or get in the water or climb the hill or jump on the trampoline or whatever it is. Um, and so that kind of, he saw that in what I wrote and it was there, but that gave me some confidence that maybe I was onto something that it would be nice to talk about. Now, as the writer, director, and star, you were probably having competing voices at times. I'm curious how much of the script that you originally wrote changed as, for example, you started directing or as you started incarnating Jackie, um, did you shoot pretty much what you wrote or did it go through stages? There were a million stages before we started shooting. Then once we started shooting, unless something was horrible, it was pretty much what I wrote. Um, a couple of times I would hear something and be like, that's just not good. And I'd have to try to think of something on my feet. But basically it was there. There was a ton of sort of agonizing um, leading up to it. Um, 
big changes, things that weren't in the movie in the end that were in there for a long time and the opposite answers that came at, at the last minute that kind of give you vertigo, like what if they hadn't come? So, um, but once we started shooting, given the demands of making an independent movie in the water, um, we kind of, we, we, sh we shot pretty much what I wrote. Because, for example, I found the opening scene most intriguing. We don't know, at the beginning of the film, a plot point that is revealed kind of late, that the brother of Angelo had died, which explains the overprotective aspect. The decision to begin with the mother sitting in a, a long shot, but so quiet, there's no dialogue, in front of the door of the child, I was curious if that was always the beginning of the film. No, with that there were later. years of bad flashbacks that, thank God, were replaced by this idea. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, I, I worry... I'm back to Hillman again. I don't know if, how many people know James Hillman. He wrote a book called The Soul's Code, and I'm, he, he was a big figure to me. And um, he has another essay um, in this book of poetry that's supposed to be for men, but it's for me, men and me, because I got a ton out of it, and I'm sure every woman in the room would also. But um, it had to do with this phrase, loving the world anyway. Can you love the world anyway? Which I took and put in Luke Wilson's mouth. <laughs> put my name on it. Um, but I was very moved by that. And so as I, I really wrestled for a long time with lifting the entire thing about the loss of the child out, it seemed like too easy. Of course, you're going to feel for her if she went through the worst thing that could happen. But I, I couldn't seem, first of all, people very close to me, including my own mother, had been through that experience. Um, and and I, I bet you people in the room, more than we wish, have been through that. And, and more importantly, I didn't know two films in how to make a story about loving the world anyway without having her um, have gone through something with those kinds of teeth. So, mm -hmm. so the... The part of the story, I wrestled with it and just humbly could not figure out the story without it. And, the, and But the beginning, this one shot, one image came after agonizing about, I know I don't want a bunch of flashbacks in there. I know that's really inelegant. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And uh, some very patient friends letting me whine at them that I didn't know what to do. And then finally this came. Well, it's an example of what some other wonderful directors have talked about. In fact, there's a term that I love. It comes from this Polish filmmaker, Kieślowski, about whom I wrote a well, book. Who I'm always compared to. No, I didn't think so. <laughs> that would have surprised me. But he called it retroactive reasoning. He very often would take a shot from a scene that comes later in the film, and he would put it at the beginning, like three colors white, because he wanted to engage the audience so that they didn't know. They had to become much more active in watching the film to figure out the details. And then when you see the scene that it does relate to, that little aha moment, it's a retroactive reasoning that if you paid attention before, your payoff comes later. Yeah, and that's I've been exactly... watching movies my whole life, but I still, you sit in an editing room, editing room and you have to remind yourself, just because you wrote it like this does not mean it has to go like this. And that it is a series of photographs, and they can be moved around. Big things were moved around um, in the editing of this. Well, what you're describing also adds, I think, another layer to the film, because at the beginning, your character is wonderfully New York, you know, that hyperactive, verbally dexterous character who's kind of emotionally clueless about how to deal with her son. And in the process of the film, letting go 
become such a sort of prominent feeling. I mean, you, you have to hold on to the surfboard, it's mm -hmm. true, but emotionally we see Jackie letting go. And at the end when she says to her son, I need nothing, it seems to be at 180 degrees away from the character that we met at the beginning. So that, I guess, was more in the screenplay or... No, I mean, it was in the screenplay for sure. Once I created this woman based on a couple of, of mother-son relationships I knew, um, I thought, where, where would this person be the least comfortable on earth? And it would probably be in Venice Beach getting a surf lesson. And that just made me laugh, just the idea of that person getting a surf lesson. That was the fact that it made me laugh. That was a good beginning. But you had already done some on-screen surfing. We showed that clip from Soul Surfer, which I thought was very moving, the true story of Bethany Hamilton, um, a plucky adolescent in, in Hawaii whose arm was bitten off by a shark and who got back onto the surfboard. Did you, um, I mean, had you already begun surf, taking surfing lessons for that film and did that help prepare for this? Yeah, 10 years ago I decided I wanted to learn how to surf and got a surf lesson and it was just, it was a nightmare. I was screamed at by this child. I was put on like basically the West Side Highway, 50 soft top surfboards. I, I got out of the water and said, never again. And I thought anything that, I mean, I felt humiliated, not humble, humiliated. And I thought, well, I should probably do this again and I should probably write about it. Um, then I found a much nicer surf teacher and fell, you know, at least as many times, at least as horribly as I do in the movie. And then you stand up on that thing and you see why people say, I'll just give my whole life up for this seven seconds of sport. Wow, wow. <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, with a lot of trepidation and fear and whining, I do love the sport, but um, it was already in my head. So that's what made, I think, writing it easier. And then Soul Surfer was just this funny thing that came in and I wasn't even supposed to surf in it. And the director went, wait a minute, we should put you up on a board. Hmm. <laughs> I'm wondering in some ways whether there's a parallel between how Jackie rises to the challenge of that surfboard and you rising to the challenge of directing a film, which in many ways is as overwhelming and, and fraught with peril as the act of getting on a surfboard. I mean, did you feel a connection between them? I think I was just in, literally swimming in the connection, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, the dynamic of the older woman, younger man, is treated with very non-problematically, which I appreciated. And was that something important to you from the beginning? In other words, that it not be the, the central plot point, that she not, for example, you know, make romance the, the most vital aspect of her life? I mean, I wrote it as a love story between a mother and a son. Um, mother has son, mother loses son, mother gets son maybe in a new way. And so the, the romance was always meant to be you know, second or third to that. Um, and I did think it was fun that this person who's been absolutely, you know, out of any part of her sexual life would be with like Luke Wilson on the beach in California. Why would I not write that? Yep. Why would I not write that? I, I will buy that. <laughs> There's that really lovely scene towards the end of mother and son surfing together before he goes back to NYU. <laughs> And that, the very last scene, though, is of Jackie alone. Her hair is longer, so we know that some time has passed. And I 
kept wondering after the first time I saw the film, so what happens to Jackie after the last scene? And of course, I'm reminded of the line, surprising and inevitable <laughs> is what an ending has to mm. be. What, could you tell us a little about where you think we're leaving Jackie? Well, that a lot of money. <laughs> Maybe with some fun in her life, I, you know, I think that was the thought that really it's been all so planned and dictated and controlled that she needs to not know what's coming next. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I only wrote I mean, it up to that point. <laughs> I don't have any, I really don't. I mean, I think there's meant to be big spaces in the life of someone whose life had no spaces because she couldn't stand. I had a scene that I cut out where She's walking on the beach and she, after their big fight and she sees a piece of beach glass and the phone falls out and the water goes over the phone and the phone goes dead and it just didn't, I had, it just was a bump in the road that I wish had worked but didn't. But a lot of it is this way we all live now. I just am terrified about it. And um, so I didn't have the actual phone, you know, cease to function but I, but I did try to, um, take her, unplug her. Well, that's a very good way to put it, to unplug <laughs> her. I was also aware, and forgive me, but it's because as a teacher, I mean, anyone in this room who's ever been in my class knows that I am the most horrific stickler for grammar and punctuation and spelling. So, you know, when you correct people saying, I'm well, you know, <laughs> as opposed to I'm good, but at the end, you even let go of that. Jackie <laughs> says, I'm good, going, yeah. you know, towards <laughs> the ocean. And just personally, that resonated even oh, more good. with me, because that's really letting go. Yes. I, I, I haven't been able to let go like that yet. <laughs> um, the casting, I think, was particularly good for, for many of these roles. I wanted to know about, for example, Angelo. Brenton Thwaites, am I mm -hmm. pronouncing it yes, right? Yes, you are. He's Australian. And some of you may have seen him last summer in The Giver. And then he, in Maleficent with Angela Jolie, was the prince. Um, did you cast him after seeing either of those or before? No, I, I hadn't seen either of them before I cast him. And uh, he was not at all what I imagined for the part. I mean, what I wrote was somebody like her. Um, I imagined some, you know, pasty kid who had not been outside in too long and was caught up in his head the way she is and um, that they would be much more similar. And then he came in and he's just clearly, you know, on his way to being a gigantic movie star, and that was, you kind of have to not ignore that if you're trying to make your little independent movie, um, and sweet, and wanted to read, and he had this movie coming out, you know, and uh, that, it was, see, I was seeing myself, you know, I had movies like As Good As It Gets, where I was not right, I, he didn't really, I don't think, want to see me particularly, and I just pushed my way in and started auditioning, and he kind of said, somebody should probably tape this, and I don't know, can I? He was terrified to hire me because I wasn't what he wrote, you know? But there I was. And that's how I felt about Brenton. He just wasn't giving up and uh, really wanted to work on it. And, you know, there are some parts I know as an actor I'm just not right for and should never play, and there's parts I'm perfect for and could do in my sleep, but some of the most interesting ones happen in the space between you and that part, and then you as a director, you go, is it too far, is it? And so, because of all of his hard work and willingness and enthusiasm, I thought this might be one of those cases where um, his stretch to meet it would, and it changed the, the movie, actually, because um, he's so sweet. <laughs> he's so sweet. I didn't write as sweet a person as I, I saw, as I met and as I see on the screen. He's just vulnerable. And, 
being just buzzed around like, you know, a horrible hornet when she's talking at him like that. And it, it changed the movie. And I think, I think one of the, the things I'm learning about the job is you have to be willing to let the movie tell you what it is when it walks in the room. So it was a case of really giving up your plan and going with what was there. And how important was rehearsal to you? Because I know that sometimes actors prefer to have a longer rehearsal period. Did you have one? And was that the character of Angelo, did it emerge more in that process, or was it secondary? Yeah, we watched Young Frankenstein, which he hadn't seen. <sighs> what made you choose <laughs> Young Frankenstein? it's the best movie in the world. OK. <laughs> Why would you not steal two laughs from Mel Brooks when you can? <laughs> Why would you not do that? Um, I like rehearsing, you know, for the most part, except when you're working with kids, this idea of like, I'll, spoil, I'll spend it all in rehearsal. Like, ah, I feel like you should be rehearsing forever and then, and then it should come alive. Um, we didn't have any forever given our schedule on the movie, but we, we worked on it. We worked on it very hard. And, after we shot for a month in LA, we came here to do all those early New York scenes, and then he and I just, you know, drilled the lines like crazy because they were coming fast for me, and I wrote them. Well, this is a film that has a lot of dialogue, and yeah. it is delivered sometimes extremely fast, including the texting and the mm -hmm. talking, and there's a real speed that becomes absolutely necessary. Um, another work of art that you reference is Gabriel Garcia Marquez, um, 100 Years of Solitude. And I was wondering whether it's because the story there takes place in the moment before a firing squad when a life is recalled. And here the son is trying to write a story that takes place between the moment that someone falls and lands. Was that? I absolutely planned it. No, I'm very excited. I didn't think about it that way. I read it when I was 25 and loved it. That was about it. But that's incredible. I'm amazing if that really lines well, up. Well, I love myself much more than I did a few minutes ago. Well, really. one of the things I've learned is, actually, it's a line from D.H. Lawrence when he wrote studies in classic American literature about Nathaniel Hawthorne. He said, never trust the teller, trust the tale. Yeah, Hillman, not to just stay on him, but he had a whole thing about biography and it's that you can't really get, that it's in the work. The biography of the person is more in the work than in the story they tell. Absolutely, themselves. and so much of yeah. what we get is subconscious. I mean, some of the books I've read or films I've seen, I can't tell you that this comes from so-and-so, and yet very often it'll emerge and it's part of me in ways that I don't even recognize. Yeah. By the way, there is a film that was made about three years ago that has a similar, uh, it, it's kind of a funny story. It, am I getting the title right? Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck directed it. It takes place between the moment a young man jumps mm. and then what happens. Mm. And, and it's a brilliant, uh, low-budget independent film. Um, I wanted to go back a little bit to, to your origins because, I mean, you've been acting since you were like nine years old. Um, and I know that your father, Gordon Hunt, had been uh, coach and director, and that presumably is one of your inspirations. But are there particular actors, female actors, that were, were more inspirational as you were growing up, wanting to be more like that or like that? Or, I mean, I studied acting because, you know, my aunt, who's my age, so sort of like a cousin, we grew up together, she was doing it. So I was out in California for the summer, and she took ballet. I went with her and took ballet. She took acting. I guess I'll do that. But slowly, there was a kid's class from 1 to 3 and an adult's class from 3 to 6, and I just didn't leave. I just stayed, and she let me. So something was happening. 
Um, my dad was directing plays, and I didn't ever think, I didn't have that feeling of I want to be up there on that stage. I liked it in that room, in this room, safe room where a story gets told. You're going anywhere you want, but it's in this, somehow the, the cocktail of adventure, but nice and contained. I just loved being in there. And then I got a job because an agent came to the acting class, so suddenly there I was uh, working, which was not the plan at all. So I think in terms of those women actors that I loved, that came later, you know? Sure. Maggie Smith, still forever, just let her be in the middle of her career, I hope. I <laughs> just, um, everything she does. Marion Seldes was a big oh, yeah. influence on me. I went to see Marion Seldes after, backstage after a play, and <laughs> I just wanted to tell her how great she was, and I knocked on the and I'm not saying any, I'm not being self-deprecating. I'm very proud of my work, but this is Marion Seldes. And I knocked on the door and opened it up and she went like this. <laughs> my darling. <laughs> and that's, that's how she treated other actors. Wow. Um, so I kind of worshiped her a lot. Wow. Maybe because I've been watching a fair number of Barbara Stanwyck films on TCM over the past year, she came to mind as someone in whose context I sort of see your work, because not so much the glamour puss, not quite the girl next door, but somebody who, on a dime, can turn from being um, tough and competent to being vulnerable, from being not at all gorgeous to being quite beautiful. I mean, just that, that range mm. struck me as something that perhaps you might have been aspiring to. No, I'm very flattered. I know um, in terms of the tone of movies that go the way this one does from hopefully very funny to hopefully something else, I mean, I've been asked a lot, how did you deal with the tone? I, I don't even understand that because my life is really funny and really terrifying and tragic in one hour, a lot. <laughs> Not once in a while. A lot. So, the, so movies like what this is trying to be feel much more at home to me than something that drives straight east or straight west. Sure. I mean, this is what they call character-driven more than plot-driven because insofar as we care about Jackie, we just go, well, literally for the ride. I mean, it's, yeah. it's very much about the process of, of moving through it. Um, I can't help but, but feel that you and, and Jodie Foster have had interesting, for me, intersecting careers. I mean, the fact that she has been directing movies lately, like you, and started as a child actor like you, am I right in assuming that over the years your paths would have crossed a number of they've times? Barely, weirdly, yeah. they've barely crossed. I think she's incredible, but we, hard, you know, we hardly know each other. It's strange. Okay. Once in a while I'm asked if I'm Judy Foster. <laughs> the occasional person in a red, are you Judy Foster? I'm like, no one, no. Not, not either of those things. <laughs> But uh, I, you know, have great, great respect for her. Well, you began directing with television. A few episodes of Mad About You. I know uh, Californication and uh, two episodes of Revenge. Was it the experience of directing for television that gave you the taste to direct a feature? Or was it that you knew you wanted to make a feature and directing for TV would give you some of that background? I think the second one. I never, on all the movie sets I was on for all those years, didn't say, that looks like a great job. It just didn't. It looked like a headache to me. But, um, but when I started writing, I began to feel like it, it, that I didn't want to, you know, do, I didn't want to make this story and then hand it to someone else, you know, hand the ball to someone else. 
uh, I wanted to make the story. And um, so then I thought I better begin to have some mileage behind the camera. But um, I'm, it's, it's really like you, you won't, when you're writing, you just have this, but then you get to making it and suddenly there's all these artists who walk in and help you think of things like let's pull all the color way back at the beginning of the movie and let's shoot her through doors and make everything very vertical and then let's shoot an anamorphic so as she goes west everything will get very spread out. I mean that's all just like these gifts that come and come and come when you're making a movie and they go all the way through the final mix of the movie. Yeah, it is a wonderfully collaborative medium but yeah. as I'm sure you've learned, as the director, you're the one who has to have the most coherent and consistent vision, the through line from beginning to end. Now, the decision to direct, I, I hope you don't mind my asking this, is it more because of the passion that you felt in wanting to tell a story like this, or is it also partly because of the dwindling of good roles for women once they're past their 30s? In other words, yeah, they're not that great before their 30s either. They're pretty few and far between for men and women, actually. But um, I, I, directing came out of wanting to tell the stories that I wrote. Um, I, writing maybe came out of, well, I don't have a job I like now. What am I going to do? <laughs> um, and so I think having that um, time where you aren't on a set working because you haven't found a part or been asked to do a part that you like, you know, that is why these two movies happened. You have worked with some extraordinary directors. When I started looking through the filmography, we didn't show it, but Woody Allen for, for Curse of the Jade Scorpion, Robert Altman, Nancy Myers, James Brooks, Francis Coppola, small part in Peggy Sue Got Married. You were the daughter? I was the daughter. Right. Um, Fred Skepsi, Mimi Later with Pay It Forward, Robert Zemeckis, Gary Sinise, who I love with Miles From Home, Jonathan Kaplan. I, I'm not just listing a bunch of names. I'm curious whether any of these directors particularly gave you something that you learned that you could use when you directed. Well, probably Jim Brooks, I'm sure. He looked at both movies um, and was just did his smart thing of helping me chew on it for a while. And I love, I love his movies. The tone is certainly, I'm sure, just at the hem of that skirt. Um, uh, so he, he comes to mind for sure. Yeah, and I, I'm sure all of you know, he was once a guest on this stage that he directed um, As Good As It Gets, yeah. in addition to broadcast news in terms of endearment and quite a few other notable films. Um, and you, as a woman, I, I, I need to ask you, do you think it is harder for a female director to get a film made, or is it simply challenging to get a film made whose central character is a woman of a certain age? I would like to skywrite the word both. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, you just named all these directors. There were two among 15, and that's the, those are the statistics in the DGA. So, you know, both, 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 and we just have to keep moving forward. And this is your second. Mm -hmm. With Then She Found Me, which I, I hope you'll all get to see if you have not already seen it from 2007, um, I, I found it such an engaging dramedy, you know, about also motherhood, both yeah. biological and adoptive. And um, I just have to mention, it, there's such a nice directorial touch that I honestly believed was clearly showing a female director. There's a love scene between your character and Colin Firth on a couch, and she says to him, you're looking at me. And he says, of course I am. 
And it's their mutual gaze that makes the scene so much more than just sexual coupling with montage. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, there was a vision of what makes a moment truly romantic. And I, that's the kind of thing, I was just curious with your first film, you know, how much freedom did you feel because there you were adapting an existing novel? Well, I was very, very lucky. Um, Eleanor Lippmann, I wouldn't even be surprised if she was here, are you here? Um, she's a wonderful novelist who wrote this book that I loved and there was a very faithful adaptation written by a wonderful screenwriter and I tried to get it made and I couldn't get it made and a very smart studio executive said it's beautiful and not quite a movie yet so I tried to rewrite it keeping all of her wonderful, wonderful characters intact and it still didn't happen so I put it down and I think, you know, loving the book is a problem if you're about to, you know, you do have to be able to bite into it and, and make the movie the priority, not the feelings of the novelist or the feelings of the characters you've come to love. And uh, in the novel, this girl is 30 and gets married at the end. Well, I was 40, um, desperately wanting to be pregnant, not sure what this protagonist should want. And then I thought, hmm, maybe she wants a baby. And in a story, if you haven't seen it, about mothers and daughters. This is a, a grown woman whose um, birth mother finds her and wants to forge a relationship with her, but she's very untrustworthy, the mother, and they try to find their way together. So it seemed, oh, I, I, I remember something about, you know, what stories they're supposed to have, and they're supposed to have a protagonist who wants something really badly, and I've never wanted anything as badly as I want this baby. Boom. And then this Hillman essay called Betrayal, um, you can't really love till you've made peace with betrayal. That's not in the essay, but that's what I got out of it. So, bum, I had a sentence. And then I was able to mm. throw beautiful characters out and make two, new ones of my own and kind of take some ownership of it. And I had nothing but support from her, which is pretty incredible. Wow. And some smart casting, too, because Bette Midler, as the, uh, as the biological mother, claiming, for example, to her daughter that the biological father was Steve McQueen, the actor, and doing all sorts of crazy stuff that you just don't buy as the character doesn't buy. And yet, after a while, the bond between the two women grows truly meaningful. Um, I have to confess that when I saw the film, I gasped at one scene, and that was because the gynecologist was played by Salman Rushdie. I, I didn't mean it to, that way. People I, made so much of it. I, I, there's a movie very much about, my character played a very conservative Jewish woman, and there's a moment at the end where they pray, and I didn't want it to be this sort of Judeo-Christian prayer. I'd want it to be a prayer in general without, so I thought maybe someone um, East Indian, if the doctor happened to be from that part of the world, and I auditioned actors and didn't find them, and Salman Rushdie auditioned, I don't know how it happened, but then people made a thing of it, and I didn't mean it to be a thing. I just... Well, it just, for me, it was like a, whoa, <laughs> Salman Rushdie agreed to play a gynecologist in her first feature? It's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I didn't mean it whatever way. I don't know how people took it, but I didn't mean it that way. It, it, it added another eye-winking <laughs> layer to what was already a I just wasn't in on film. it. I really wasn't in on it. Okay, I'm going to move to my favorite film, as I said, of 2012, because if you have not seen the sessions, I cannot tell you more, you know, <laughs> plainly that you must. And um, based on a true story, John, uh, uh, John Hawks. Hawks is so amazing as Mark yeah. O'Brien, yeah. who was diagnosed with polio at the age of six, and then had to remain pretty much for the rest of his life in an iron lung, except for a few hours a day. 
and hires a sex therapist. And this is based on his own story. And I was blown away by the way that you played Cheryl um, Gordon-Green, partly because um, there's a degree of both emotional nakedness and physical nakedness in a part that I had never quite seen on screen before. And I was wondering whether among the, the variety of roles that you've played, was that one even more challenging? Partly because it's a real person, partly because of both physical and emotional nudity. I mean, I was naked in the movie. That was just like, jump in the pool or don't come to the right. party. <laughs> you know, that, that was what it was. And, the, and my, but there wasn't any good to be had by worrying about that, you know, and, and the story. I just had not read anything like that. I'd be so proud if I made that film. Ben Lewin made that film, who came to see this film last night. It was very supportive. But um, I turned the last page and said, I want to be in that. And somewhere over here was, I think you have to be naked. But I did not focus on it because it's just so rare that you read something good and even more rare that you read something good and really new, um, brand new. So I very much wanted the part. And uh, I, in, a, in a world of um, just twisted sexual images, to get the privilege of being in a movie about healthy sex, I really feel like, you know, if, if I'm leaving anything behind at all, these two movies and that movie, you know, that it, 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 it made people see and made me see when I, when I saw it how um, it's a little bit like what the phones are doing to us, I believe, the images of sex and the, and the billboards and the women being put through God knows what as the, to sell a watch, like I'm over it, I'm over it. And uh, so to get to be in a movie that was unabashedly about sexuality, what healthy sexuality should be, that was very exciting for me. Absolutely. And one of the things that comes through in both the sessions and tonight in Ride, I mean, you seem to be very comfortable inhabiting women who respect their bodies, who are comfortable in their skin. I mean, um, the fact that Jackie, you know, whether she is swimming in New York, by the way, the pool is the one I happen to swim in. I recognized it right away. <laughs> um, 57th Street and 2nd uh, and, and whether she's doing that or the gumption to get on the surfboard and to keep falling off and getting back on again, not unlike the character of Cheryl in the sessions. This is a different kind of physical female incarnation. It has nothing to do with having boobs that are the right size. It has everything to do with respect for this thing that houses who we are. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if this was consciously, you know, a connection for you, but... I mean, I think for me, it was beyond the body. It was about sex, you know, that, that sex can be this thing that you, where you tell each other what you like and what you don't like. Like, the vulnerability of that, we have these wildly sexual images everywhere and pornography everywhere and you just kind of like it's like throwing a mess of paint on the wall whereas this was like very nowhere to hide not just because everybody was naked but because they were actually talking about what they wanted and what they didn't want it's like it was um it was radical in its own quiet way i thought sure on the other hand i do see a bit of a connection between the sessions and the previous film you made the water dance we showed a clip from that because yeah. there too your character has a sexual yeah. frankness with a man who has been 
disabled physically by an accident. And I don't know whether you yourself felt the connection. I mean, I, it was the two times I've been naked, so I noticed it for sure. <laughs> but, um, but I think there's a reason, and that is once the, once the disability is there, um, you, can't, you can't afford the luxury of not opening your eyes using your words to say what you want and don't want to have happen, that's, that's taken away. So all that's left is a very present, um, naked in every way connection between two people. Absolutely. I, I, I do want to share with you and everyone that when I watched the water dance, which was for the first time about two weeks ago, I then went where I always go to find reviews of the time, which is Roger Ebert. Mm. You know, when he died a few years ago, was, I think, very... A, a terrible loss for many of us, those of us who knew him and those who did not. And I just want to share with you what he wrote in 1992 when he I was completely he healthy. He said, films are so often about big, dumb conflicts and predictable conclusions. The water dance is about the everyday process of continuing one's life under a tragically altered set of circumstances. It considers what life is and under what conditions it is worth living, unquote. Mm. And he himself, within yeah. 10 years, would confront something even worse than the character of the water dance. And I, I just found it remarkable how his review was both sensitive about that film and prescient mm -hmm. in terms of his where life, he would yeah. go later. Um, I do want to ask more about how you choose roles because I just saw Decoding Annie Parker. Now, again, I, I never even heard of this film from 2013, but because I do my homework. Um, I got it from Netflix, and I thought, what an amazing movie. Yeah. Um, you play the geneticist Mary Claire King, in, who in Canada was trying to amass sufficient evidence that there is a genetic basis for certain breast cancers. Yeah, she isolated the BRCA1 gene. And it's a small film. Uh, Samantha Morton gives a powerhouse performance as a young Canadian woman who has breast cancer and knows that it has to be genetic given her family history. I mean, what leads you, for example, to say yes to a secondary role, it's a smaller part Much in a smaller. film like that? I mean, yeah. are there... I mean, it's the, it was made, written and directed by a, a cinematographer that I had met for Then She Found Me, who's clearly a smart guy who had a very personal connection to the story. Um, and Samantha Morton... Yeah. I would like to direct Samantha Morton or be Samantha Morton. I just think she's incredible. So that was very promising. And I thought, I thought the movie was beautifully written. And it is really worth seeing. You don't think at the end of a long day you want to put in this movie about this woman's you know, ride with cancer and this doctor's ride with this gene. But it is worth seeing. It's really, he did a great job. No, absolutely. It's, it's a very compelling, dramatic piece of movie making as well as it happens to be a true story. Yeah. And one more, just I, I don't know how many here are familiar with A Good Woman, which you made with Scarlett Johansson approximately. I know exactly because I was very pregnant when I made it, so it must have been 11 or 12 years ago. This is a film adapted from Oscar Wilde, Lady Windermere's fan, which is, you know, and, and it's a period film but set in the 1930s on the Italian Riviera. And you play a very different kind of character from what we see in your other movies. You tend to be, you know, uh, accessibly contemporary, whatever. And here, you were playing a pretty brittle um, adventurous. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I was curious how that came about. I mean, I was offered the part. Scarlett Johansson plays my daughter, but she doesn't know. Uh, she's my daughter. 
I was just so pregnant and, and <laughs> nauseous, to be honest. I had a lot of beautiful dresses on, and, uh, and um, my friend Bill Gerber liked it and seemed to really get it, and I was just trying to get through the day <laughs> with my white knuckles and very pregnant. And we were shooting it on the Amalfi Coast, and it was style, you know, it yes. was style, which I don't do that much of real period, come up to the table with the right style. And speaking of style, in addition to Scarlett Johansson as your co-star, the extraordinary Tom Wilkinson, who I just, yeah. in every film, I'm... He's like James Mason or something. He's incredible. Maybe even more versatile than James Mason, because he does comedy and drama with equal aplomb. Yeah. But the scenes between you and him are, for me, just worth seeing the movie all over again. And before we open up to audience questions, I do want to mention theater, because we tend to forget that you are also a stage actor. I mean, I, I had to be reminded of it because I have unfortunately never seen you on stage. Mm -hmm. But I know that you appeared in Circle in the Square's production of Yasmina Reza's Lifetimes 3 in 2003. I may have seen, though, Twelfth Night that you did with Paul Rudd um, at Lincoln Center back in 98. It was also broadcast on PBS. And that you played Emily in the Tony-winning production of Our Town together with um, Eric Stoltz um, and, and Spalding Gray. Um, and then you played the stage manager in a later version of Our Town. And finally, your credits with the L.A. theater company, The Actors Gang, mm. include Ann Nelson. I, I know her, mm. her the, the wonderful The Guys. How important is theater for you? Is this something you feel you keep wanting to go back to? Or? I mean, it's everything. It all comes from that. Everything we're talking about comes from that. So it's everything. But it's also, you know, it's bedtime. So if you have a child and you want to be there for bedtime, it's hard to do sign up for a year of a run of a play. It seems like a perfect thing because you're free during the day, but they get home from school and you say, I'm going to go pretend to be somebody else. So, you know, there's nothing I love more. Playing the stage manager in our town, if I could do that and tour around the world for the rest of my days, I'd be happy as a clam saying those words every night. But, um, you know, I choose it carefully because of my family. Sure. What is next for you? Do you now plan to direct more or more with the acting? I plan to I plan to plan to direct and then be interrupted by offering so many great parts that I can't get to it. That's my hope. Um, I'm beginning, beginning, beginning to write something now very different than these two movies, something I wouldn't be in, a drama, um, about an alternative to the punitive justice system. Um, but I'm so at the beginning that I shouldn't even... Say, think it. Um, and I'm developing with my partner, Matthew Carnahan, who created House of Lies, the Don Cheadle show, um, a television, very ambitious, bizarre television series that I hope we are able to make. And would you be acting in I that as well? I would be acting well? in that, yeah. Great. Your mention of the punitive justice system, forgive me, I just, I do want to ask this. We showed a clip, or two clips, from Murder in New Hampshire which is based on the true story of Pamela Wojcicki. I was in there getting my hair dried, and I just see this clip that I barely remembered of me kissing a child. 1991, yeah. Strange. Yes. But, but, I mean, really, because you had done these sweet little girls. Prior to that, I saw you um, with Diane Lane, the child bride of Short Creek. I watched that. You were a very young and actually very appealing child star. Um, last year, I saw the HBO documentary about Pamela Wojcicki Smart called Captivated, which makes a very persuasive case for a miscarriage of justice and for a rush to judgment, because even though the clips that we showed make it clear that the character there was 
egging on her young boyfriend to kill her husband. The fact is that in the real case, all three of the young men who were convicted and imprisoned are out. They all finished their term. And she is still in prison, for a life sentence, yeah. for as accomplice to murder. Mm -hmm. Even though in jail she has really done remarkably. She's gotten two master's degrees, one in criminal law, and she teaches young women how to write. Whether she's innocent or not, certainly there's a double standard involved if the boys are out and she's still in prison. I was curious whether you have, you know, in, how you felt about doing that part and whether you followed her case at all. No, I, I haven't really. I saw part of that documentary. Um, Joyce Chopra directed it, and she's a wonderful director, and I thought, I why, why are we making this? Do you know why you're making this movie? And she had a real something she wanted to say about it actually was the beginning of this whole thing, video games and all of it kind of... Um, you know, her idea was that, the, and this is just the fictionalized version, I don't know anything about the real case, but her idea about this, these, the fictionalized version was that, you know, if you are so cut off from who you are that you can be influenced by something that you might not otherwise be influenced by. I think that that was sort of what she was trying to tell with this. And also, this was the first televised trial. In, in other words, it was the first case of what has become reality TV. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the film was shown on TV six months after the trial and has the real Bill Spencer playing himself. He was the reporter who sort of became the prosecutor. Nevertheless, I could not believe that at the very end of the film, and it's called the Pamela Woja story, it says any resemblance to real people is, you know, <laughs> da-da. Um, okay, I know that people have questions for you and I could keep asking, but I won't. I'm going to let, let the house lights come up slightly so that we can take a few from the audience. And, um, okay, I see one hand there, and then we have one back there. Yes. I like the opening shot of the theme in the hallway is so good because the theme of protection Were you aware that you were working with this continuing theme of protection when you have, for example, the Luke Wilson surf teacher protecting Jackie and the son also not just being protected but also protecting? Was that... I mean, I made two movies where characters can only fall asleep if they're outside their child's room. So that's something about who I am. <laughs> I like them right here. Now I can go do what I need to do. So I think that probably is a big theme for me. When I look at the two movies, I go, hmm, Colin Firth sleeps on the, sneaks into his kid's room and can only fall asleep if he's in the room with them, and then this, so yeah, must be. <laughs> uh, yes, and, and then also, I'm sorry, the one in the back first and then here. Because the writing of this film is so funny, were you born with a sense of humor? How did you develop it? 
I don't know. Um, you know, I grew up on Mel Brooks, David Steinberg, um, a few key players that I, you know, I memorized David Steinberg's album when I was eight. That's a bizarre thing to do, for sure. And uh, that's why, you know, Young Frankenstein is in the movie. Um, that's why I was able to do Mad About You. So I, I don't know. I love Lucy, you know. I remember my mother coming in the room and I would watch these I Love Lucy episodes and say, like, what are you going to make out of your life? You're watching this sitcom about a married couple in New York, you know. <laughs> it, it worked out. So I probably, I don't know. I guess I, maybe that did it. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Was the joint as good as it got? What do you mean, that I'm smoking in there? I don't know what to say. Sure. <laughs> yes? <laughs> is, there, I'll just repeat. Yeah. is there an analogy between what happens to Jackie and the son's story, which is basically the notion of sort of dying and then reincarnating as some other? I didn't have that in mind at all, but that's great. The only thing I had in mind was that um, the tendency um, for people, and this is the, you know, there's so much generalizing, this is what California people like, and this is what New York people are like in the movie. But while I'm doing that, the idea that, um, you know, California people put meaning to everything, or, you know, it was all meant to be, and she's saying, well, in my idea, she jumps and then she's, she dies, which is what happens when you jump. Just a sort of simpler, straight-ahead version would be, you know, what she might write, and then maybe wonder if she had made a mistake. Yeah, but in yeah. reality, that's yeah. what happens to her. Yeah. The old Jackie. Yeah. <laughs> she gets fired, and that's that. <laughs> yes. Do you have any interest in prequels or sequels to the things that you've done? Um, sure, if they're you know good or they want to pay me money, I would be so happy. But I mean, I, 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 you know, I haven't. These are the only two that I've written, and they'd be really weird, boring sequels to those, I think. But um, I would, yeah. If, they, if somebody wanted to and could think of a good idea. Oh, yeah. The Regina Bakery. Yeah. As good as it gets was shot in this gentleman's neighborhood. You mentioned you, you like to do a lot of rehearsals. I'm just wondering as a director, do you like a lot of takes? And, and, and also, you know, you obviously acted before directing, so is it the same thing on both sides? As a director, do you like to do a lot of takes? And since you've both acted and directed, um, I'm sorry, the... Yeah, I mean, as a director, do you, are you more willing to move on quickly as an actor? As a director, are you more willing to move on quickly as opposed to an actor? Well, these are, you know, I've made two independent movies, which is code for, you know, you've got to watch the time because it's expensive. And so I, I would love to have done many more takes, of, in, not of the water stuff. We, we did enough already. <laughs> Um, more might have killed me, but, but of the rest of the scenes, yes, there's always this feeling of do we have it, do we have it, and trying to budget the day, I'm going to later, I'm going to wish we did three more, but if I don't finish on time, I'm, you know, we're never going to be back at this location again, you're just making, 
impossible choices all the time. But yes, in a perfect world, I'd like to make this movie and have twice as much time to work with actors and get it just right. Okay, uh, there, oh, over here, right? Yes. Uh, both. He passed away after the movie, and so we loved him madly. He's the, just the most lovely man in the world. He's responsible for all the water. Everything shot in the water is him. Um, he's in the surf wor world. He's a legend, and he's my age. Um, just the best attitude, so smart. Um, I learned, you know, when you're directing a movie and you watch dailies, a few days in, you learn who, oh, that guy told me that this would look good, and it does. So he, I learned early on, he's, he's always right, do what he says. So, you know, many movies have a few scenes in the water or one couple shots in the water and they bring him in. He was in before anybody. Uh, he was the first member of the crew that I sent it to long before I had any way to make the movie. And I said, can you do this? Like, it's probably going to be an independent movie and can I make an indie in the water? Yeah, yeah, we'll do it. So he was an incredible guy. Actually, I wrote a piece in the Huffington Post that's going to appear tomorrow, is Thursday, tomorrow, about him, which I'd be oh. thrilled if everybody read. So that's why it's dedicated to him. Right. Last question. How did you like working with uh, Jack Nicholson? <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> I really did. He's a con he's, you know, it's a little bit like being, uh, working with some exotic, Leopard or something. He's such a <laughs> led, you know, legend, and his wildness is what makes you unable to look away. And at the same time, you know, he comes from where I come from, acting class, hours and hours of doing scenes badly and trying things and figuring out what the character did on their way into the scene and where they're, you know, all those basic, not so mysterious things that an actor learns. That's where he comes from. So I was surprised that I felt. Um, on the same team with him rather than like I was working with this icon, which I was. Well, obviously you've learned well from him, from Jim Brooks, from so many other people, because we've just seen an example of a triple threat, writer, <laughs> director, actor, and I think you've really done a beautiful job. Thank, you. thank, thank you, you for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92yondemand.org.